Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to episode 154 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This episode is the second of our recordings taken from the Here Comes the Weekend Paul Weller celebration in Woking in the summer of 2023. Enjoy. On this episode, I am joined by a multi-instrumentalist, a producer, a songwriter, who just happens to be one of the founders of influential 80s Brit soul flag bearers, Loose Ends. I'm told, and you'll see this when he comes on stage, that he was a model at one point as well. We may get into that. And most importantly, for the purposes of this conversation, he just happens to have played trumpet, trombone, and keys with the best band in the fucking world, The Jam! Please welcome the legend that is Steve Nichol. I love it. Hey, look, and now I don't feel left out with the, or out of place rather with wow. the Nike. We've got the whole Air Jordan and the Nikes going on. We're not just Adidas in the room. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. I mean, you don't talk about this kind of thing really to anybody. So this is a real honor, real pleasure. Thank you. Um, no, I don't really actually. This is like probably the first podcast I'm actually talking about Paul and the jam. So this is going to be special. All right. This is for you in the room here today. <laughs> Obviously, if there's a load of stuff where he's slagging Weller off, I'm going to cut that out, right? No. I've got, got to bear in mind the end game. That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, let's kick off right at the early days, right? So I read as a kid, and I've got a couple of kids who are just starting to get into learning the piano, maybe like five minutes a day. But you would practice two hours a day on the piano and three hours a day on the trumpet, Monday to Friday. Was that right? How did you find that out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's exactly what happened. Um, the minute the piano came in from... Um, the church. The church was um, actually getting remodeled down the road. So the um, the priest said to um, my mother, um, would you like a piano? So the piano was actually shifted over to um, our house and it spent about a year in the hallway. And then it got shifted to my bedroom. 
And the rest is history after that. <laughs> oh, how big was this thing? The piano. Yeah. It was an upright grand. What a gift. My God. Yeah, fantastic gift. And it was all in tune as well. Nice. Okay. And you were, so you were classically trained from the age of 11. Yeah. From the age of 11, classically trained at secondary school. So I'm actually quite a late starter when it comes to, um, learning an instrument. Cause nowadays they, um, learn instruments in primary schools. But um, I was quite a late starter, but I was quite, I quickly developed. So by the time I was 13, I'd done quite a lot of stuff. And what music were you digging? What was the thing? What were the things that you were listening to? I was like an all rounder, everything. I mean, in those days, I wasn't listening to a, a lot of reggae, in fact, because they used to call me like a posh boy at school. So I was listening to um, a lot of pop, a lot of pop songs, really. Now, the jam story in terms of your approach, kicks in with a chap called Keith Thomas. And I, I want to talk about Keith because Keith sadly passed away last year. Yeah, sadly he passed away last year. Yeah. And it was down to him that you joined the lineup. But tell me about your relationship pre the jam. What, how did you know Keith? I went down on a bus down into Peckham to the post office one morning and I was picking up a gyro check. <laughs> Keith Thomas knew me and um, we got talking basically. And to cut a long story short, he said to me, there's a an audition going for the jam. Now, my friend who I play with cannot make it, so do you mind coming along? So, And that's how it happened. And this is Frankie B. Yeah, Frankie B. Frank Burke. Frank Burke. By name, was, not by nature. Yeah, but was playing out, trumpet. Missed with, out on joining the jam then? Yeah, he missed out on joining the jam. Yeah, for, from second image. Yeah. Oh, I bet he was gutted. He was, after he <laughs> saw what was going on. <laughs> Free that. How did you know Keith? Where did you met I knew Keith uh, from playing the saxophone. I used to see him walking walking around with his saxophone all the time in Peckham. And I knew his brother, Roger, that actually played the saxophone as well. So that's how we, I really got together with him. And that's a good instrument to choose if you think about it, right? You can carry it around on your shoulder. You can wander about with it. The yeah. piano, less so. No, the trumpet, definitely. Yeah, you <laughs> picked the right one there. But did you have well, a favorite between the two? Well, you know what? Uh, trumpet was my first instrument. So uh, trumpet was the first instrument I started at 11, and about 11 and a half, I started the piano. And gigging with a trumpet is, you, I mean, you look up sometimes, don't you, and think these things are easy. But that, that's, a, that's a real athletic thing to be playing that for an hour, hour and a half, two hours of a gig, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, basically, I was doing a lot of sports as well at school, so that really did help a lot. Played a lot of football, so um, that did help. But it's like... You've got to think about lung capacity. You've got to yeah. think about keeping your lips in good condition. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, right? But yeah. yeah, the embouchure is really the most important thing on the trumpet. And I was lucky enough to be able to play with no pressure. Um, but most trumpeters use a lot of pressure. I was able to like develop a technique where I had less pressure on my, um, my lips. So in, in, I, I actually got a better sound out of the instrument. And how is, is that just practice? Yeah, that's just practice. Yeah. So the amount of hours I was doing a day, I mean, I was driving the neighbors mad <laughs> to start with, um, obviously. And then after I started to get a tune together, things started to change. I love that, that the idea that the next door neighbors hear this evolution, this journey of just this absolute din coming from next door. And it's like, what, what the hell is that? And then over time, it's like, this is beautiful. I'm going to get the deck chair out in the garden, listen to this guy. How long did it take for you to get any good at it? About six months before I did my first exam. That was quite good. And then about the same on the piano. So they were following sort of hand in hand, so about six months apart. 
Did you ever do that kind of show off thing where you've got, like, I've seen Paul play the piano and he's had the guitar in his lap. Have you seen that as well? And he's kind of like, <laughs> no, I couldn't, couldn't you do, do that with the trumpet? trumpet? No, no, you can't do it with a trumpet because you need to use both hands. Well, <laughs> so yeah, that would have been quite tricky. <laughs> uh, now, so we mentioned this, this poor old Frankie B uh, who couldn't make the gig. Uh, so you go down to Nomis. Yeah, down to Nomis Studios. Yeah. And, uh, waltzed in there. And the first person that I bumped into was Tony Hadley. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they were actually in the next studio um, rehearsing. That that lot looked like a bunch of models. They were just standing there posing away. And um, I sort of introduced myself and then went round to the back where we were. And talk me through that. I mean, this is this is not X Factor type thing. It's not Red Buzzer. But talk, talk me through that it, process. It was really, really strange because um, what I could recollect is that um, he Paul would actually just play some riffs on the guitar. And he said, look, what I'm going to do... Um, I'm going to play down a couple of songs and then you can tell me which ones you like, which ones you think might need brass and which ones won't need brass. So uh, that's how we went. The band at this point are huge. Yeah. So, but it's still a really collaborative process. He's not directing you. Yeah, like- no, he was really open about the whole situation. He says, I said to him, basically, um, what style would you like? Obviously not jazzy, but he said to me, no, whatever you think you would fit the material that they're doing. So between Keith and myself, we sat down and came up with these like sort of funky type arrangements. Were the Jam a band that you'd been into? Had you seen them live? Yeah, I've definitely seen Paul, yeah, and definitely seen the Jam, like on TV and stuff. It was was like a band that you'd like look up to because they're around the same time as The Clash and all that. So you always see these kind of, you know, the three of them on stage, you know, Paul, Bruce and Rick, this incredible sound that comes from them. And they've talked about, I think it was Rick talking about the fact they always played as if they felt they were a four-piece that's how they started yeah, out. Yeah, they, they sounded like a four-piece. Yeah. Yeah. Were, were you always watching it going, do you know what? What they're missing is a bit of brass <laughs> on this. No, I didn't actually. Um, I thought it might heighten the situation. It did add, add um, a greater depth to the music, definitely. So the thing that you get brought into, and actually I think that day you start recording, don't you? Yeah, it was, I actually started recording that day when I actually was in the studio doing um, that audition it's, which I just find remarkable because it seems like even with the style council we were talking about yesterday and with Paul Weller solo, it's like the audition process isn't long and tiring. There's not like a queue of people. It's not like the acting world. There's a queue of people in a green room kind of waiting for their audition and then he picks somebody. It's like actually mm. the people going into the room have been selected and then you're getting the gig and then you're recording out songs for the gift. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because I came from a classical background, it was a little bit easier for me because I'm used to be playing in, in a symphony orchestra playing with a brass section that is so particular there is sort of no emotion really everything is really really intense with regards to symphony orchestra but at the same time it's a different style of music but then coming into the intensity of the jam there's only one way you can go you can go hard and go strong basically <laughs> you need to be match fit for those yeah you've got well, to right? be you've got yeah. to be and at the guild hall presumably they're talking you teaching you how to read music and how to perform and stuff but how much of that learning was about kind of freestyle and, and well things? actually at school um they taught you to to read and write music basically so and i used to go to the cym college for young musicians at 13 and then by 16, um, I was playing in the symphony orchestra london school symphony orchestra by 18 i was principal trumpet and I'd already toured halfway around the world doing that. So that, that sort of level, I was actually quite used to, so, but on the other side. But then coming around with Paul now and going into the studio, 
it is quite exhilarating to have to do like brass arrangements like on the spot, which literally it was. You had to be really, you had to have your wits about you and you had to think on a, on a slightly different level. It's almost like improvisation, like you're trying to say. It was, it was more like improvisation because of riffs. You do a riff and then you think, oh, what was that riff again? Can I remember it? <laughs> and that's exactly what went on. And is you and Keith working with Paul, with, with Bruce and Rick there? Yeah, and Bruce and Rick were, were definitely there. Um, Paul was saying, yeah, I like this and I don't like that, basically. Okay. He was the main, the main person behind everything. So the, there was an interview with Paul in The Guardian in, when was it, 2012? And he said, we'd already moved on from punk very quickly. And he talks about the fifth album. So by the fifth album, Sound Effects, there were a lot of disparate influences. We'd been a three-piece for years, and there were uh, only so many variations on the guitar drums format. So rightly or wrongly, I was getting into brass sections of female vocals and keyboards and trying to expand our sound. So when you joined the band, you had that audition. Did Paul talk about this idea of, of expanding things further? Yeah, he did. He wanted a, a different sound. He wanted a bigger sound, and it was going more like a Motown sound. That, that's what the way I felt it was going, especially when we did covers like War, Edwin Starr. And, and then get on up and stuff. Definitely, he was going for more of a Motown type sound with the brass section. And we'll talk about those live gigs, top of the pops and things. There's so much more to come on this, <laughs> yeah. uh, this story. For a lot of the diehard jam fans, this wasn't the most popular decisions for everybody, was it? Adding brass to that setup. No, it wasn't. Um, I found that out when we went to the Michael Sobel Center. That was a real intense atmosphere. Very, very intense atmosphere. First, first major, major show that I actually did with Paul. And we get out on stage and there was like 150,000 skinheads rushing towards you. <laughs> <laughs> Quite nerve wracking, but not for us, I should say, but really for his warm up act, which was Banana Rama. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the Christmas gigs. That was the yeah. Christmas gigs, right? Yeah. So that was the first experience live with the jam. real experience live. Yeah, Banana Rama were not a popular thing <laughs> no. with the no. Were you there at that gig? Any of you? Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> and then the questions were on that bill as well. I think was that right? Yeah, yeah. The, Which is kind of jazz, funk, soul. I mean, um, Paul Barry's been on the podcast, and they'd obviously just signed to the Respond record label. I think we had Department S as well. Department S was on. Yeah, Vaughn Toulouse. Yeah. Is yeah. Vic there? Sorry? Is Vic there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, very well, that's a good one. <laughs> I'll keep that in. I'm proud of that moment. I mean, yeah, so this is all pre the jam. Yeah. Can you remember the sound check? Were people in the sound check? Oh, wow. Then you know what? The sound checks were just not really in that intense because Paul would um, actually just play about three chords and say, okay, that's enough. No problem. You know, as long as they were out there, the outboard sound, uh, people were okay with everything. He was quite happy. Were there like production rehearsals and things like that before that then? There were a few, a few before. Yeah. Okay. So that fit with the, the full band. I mean, when you look at the, that set list, I mean, there's banger after banger. I mean, earlier on, we, talk, we had a playback of all mod cons here, but you know, the, the tracks that are part of that set list are just absolute bangers, aren't they? Cause this yeah. is the jam right at their height, right at their peak, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's entertainment was probably a main feature on that one. Um, obviously Town Called Malice, which I ended up having to play. I played the keyboards on the um, Transgobal Express tour, 
which was quite good. And on the top of the pops and all the actual other TV shows around the world that we did. 22 songs. And this is before the albums came out. And I always find this fascinating with Paul's stuff where he's road testing new songs. So even yeah. on the last tour, we had a brand, like as a solo tour, we had a brand new song that nobody had ever heard. He's not afraid to put those things out into the world. And that tour, we had like five songs that hadn't yet been released. Which yeah. Is, it just doesn't happen. You're going to have it? to refresh my memory on those well, as well. <laughs> but also it finishes with a cracking version of Give Me Just a Little More Time, Chairman of the Board. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, that was a great song. And there was like proper full-on brass from yeah. you and Keith on that, which is fabulous. So we'll come back to the live stuff in a sec, but let's talk studio. You mentioned Malice and Precious and things like that you played on. So The Gift. So this is the sixth, the final album from The Jam, released March 1982. Uh, you go into the studio in October 1981. This is just off Oxford Street. It's Air Studios, right? Air Studios, yeah. Which is George Martin's place. Yeah. Yep, yep, George Martin's place. Yeah. Good vibe. I mean, Paul was always from the Style Council and Solar Years done this residential thing. Obviously, he doesn't own that studio. First time we actually did use their studios. It's really strange because we we're up there playing Paul and uh, Paul McCartney walked in <laughs> and immediately Paul dropped his cue stick and went over to Paul, you know, to say, say hello and everything. And then later on that day, we, you know, you got a picture and everything. But that was quite strange seeing Paul McCartney. But then again, because it's George Martin's studio, you know, you would expect him to be there. And obviously we then get this, what would you say, like soul. We're getting the, the funk, a bit more R&B and the jam sound. Even wah-wah guitar and things. Yeah. It's, it's, you're funking it up, man. This is new yeah. for the jam. <laughs> Especially when it came across to doing Precious. That was very, very funky. And I didn't even know until the end of the song that Paul's saying, okay, we want to put some um, solos on at the end of this song. I don't want the solos in between. I want them right at the very end in order to like um, give it more intensity and more fire. I think more fire, he said, was his word. That's what happened there. Did you ever feel any pressure to, oh, sorry, the precious, precious, <laughs> precious pressure? Did you feel, I mean, you know, like I say, this is the biggest band in Britain at the time. Did you yeah. feel like, oh, yeah. I've got to be good here? I was sweating. <laughs> I definitely was sweating, especially doing that one. I mean, like I said, from the, from the beginning to end, it was quite an intense ride, I would say. There were no two days that were exactly the same. Every single day was different. Now, the release of Town Called Malice and Precious, double A side, gets to number one. And they're the first group since the Beatles to play two songs on Top of the Pops. We actually only found out when we were doing the Top of the Pops that day that they wanted us to do two songs. So was the idea to do Malice? It, it was, well, to do both of them. Yeah, but initially yeah. it was Malice and then they told you what we want Precious Yeah, as well. we want Precious as well. Yeah, the actual uh, program directors turned around to us and said we wanted but we want both songs because you're not playing live live are you no no not playing live at all so do you is there a bit of you that feels like a bit of a burke or you know yeah not, not frankie burke but just a bit <laughs> of a burke. but like yeah you know what it's quite a, it's quite a small small room when you're doing top of the pops it's smaller than this this room here that you're in and it's only probably a third of the crowd it's just the way they actually um put the cameras the way they show, the, show you on the camera angles actually makes it look bigger. But obviously, and, and the sound is terrible. It's actually quite shite. <laughs> <laughs> are you playing? Do you, or are you just kind of just... Do, do, uh, yeah, I'm just... <laughs> what are you doing? Well, you wouldn't know what to do. And particularly if you're sick, like Paul, you're singing. Uh, well, you, you can mime your finger actions, you, you know, in terms of what notes you're playing, definitely. Sure, Paul would be miming. His guitar wouldn't be plugged in. Right. But he'll be playing the chords. 
So it's like you're warming up, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But are you conscious of the fact that I need to put my fingers in the right places because otherwise somebody yeah, watching because, on, this on TV will be yeah, like... Yeah, because what? somebody outside will, will look at you and say, he's not playing. <laughs> yeah. He is miming. But you see that with the singers as well. They do exactly the same thing. But then some of the singers that don't are not professional enough, you can tell that they are miming. You have to put in that intensity that you put in on the record up on stage. So you've got to act even more. It's bizarre, isn't it? Why don't they yeah. just get people to play live? More, more <laughs> complicated from a production point of view. But yeah. they also had to do the whole thing where people would have to, to re-record the backing track and stuff like that, right? Yeah, they used they they were doing that at some stage. I think later on they were doing that. They were getting people to re-record their backing tracks and then singing live over the backing tracks that have been re-recorded, which is bonkers. Yeah, again, that was from like a equity side. It's an equity it? thing, I think. Yeah, it was mad. Uh, until equity, they changed the rules that you didn't need to play live. Now but you those, still get paid. For the, oh, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so for those two songs, you're also in the video. So we get, yeah. and again, Top of the Pops is the same. So it's Town Called Malice on keys. On Town Called Malice on keys. Right. And Precious on. Trumpets. Okay. Yeah. So talk me through the video making experience. Obviously done both in the same day because they're shot the same. Yeah. The one for keys, Town Called Malice, that was quite strange because Paul said to me, um, you know what? I've got this idea. White glove. I've forgotten about the white glove. Yeah. Yeah. White glove. Why don't you put a white glove on? Just one. Yeah. And <laughs> one white glove. So I put on this one white glove and that's what you see me playing this one white glove and playing the melody. Just you know, because. Just because. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. fabulous. I mean, Malice is such a, an incredible, iconic, well-loved song to the point of the European tour recently. He didn't play it for the first time in ages. People are furious. Wow. <laughs> they love that song. I mean, right. obviously, it's brilliant, isn't it? But yeah, it's on everything. Yeah. I think it's the keys that bring it to life. Yeah, that little melody. Yeah. And it's a shame that I didn't write the melody, though. Oh, so it was Paul going, this is it? And it was, no, it was, it was um, the engineer, Pete Wilson. Yeah, Pete came up with the idea for the melody. He actually played the melody on the record. I just emulated it for him. You know? Oh, I see. Cool. So you're not, okay. So you just... Yeah. Because he didn't model a white glove, that's why. No. <laughs> he refused. He still gets paid for it, though. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so the album comes out March 1982. And at this point, we don't yet know that it's the final album. No. You obviously had no whisper that in the next six months, this is all going to come to an end when this album's released, right? Um, not, not really. I mean, there were sort of um, intense things going on behind the scenes. Oh, tell us more. <laughs> no, you could see there were... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A, a slight divide 
starting to happen. Like, um, I can't remember before, it was before Japan, we were on tour in Europe. And you could see that there was slight divide going on between what um, Rick wanted to do, what Bruce wanted to do, and Paul wanted to do, obviously. No, because I, I did hear rumors of things saying he wanted to move on, but right. you know. it gets a bit cliquey, I guess, because I think Bruce and Rick were still really close. Maybe Paul was pulling away. Well, no, not really, maybe, not maybe. really. Bruce used to try and drag me out every night, every single night. I used to, Bruce wanted me to be his sidekick. I don't know why. Well, like, <laughs> wing, what, like wingman. Like his wingman, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, Bruce wanted me to be his wingman, you know. Oh, the stories I mean, we could tell, I'm yeah, sure. Rick, Rick was, uh, my wife's over there. <laughs> uh, um, in terms of Rick now, Rick was more, uh, getting more into photography and he was just everything. He was more intense with his photography, especially like in downtime. He was definitely taking pictures like left, right and center okay. and concentrating on that and talking a lot about Gibraltar. Yeah. Why? Because that's one of the places he said he'd love to retire to. Oh, yeah. I did not know this. Yes. I'll have to ask him about that. That's what Rick was always on about. Gibraltar. What happened? Okay, right. Transglobal Express Tour. How many of you in the room went along to that tour? Oh, wow. A whole heap of you, right? So this is quite a long time on the road. I mean, Paul didn't tend to do long stints, but this was like four months on the road, wasn't it? More than that. Was it? Yeah. On and off, it was. It ended up about a year I was with them. Okay. But um, yeah, probably solid on the road was four months. We have Europe. We have Sweden, Denmark, Holland. And you're traveling around on coach a lot. Yeah. How is yeah. that? Are you all in this, the same bus together? But yeah, we're all in the same bus. Yeah, the, traveling around the fjords was really beautiful in Norway. You know, first time I'd been that side. And what were the audiences like? What was the difference between the audience here in the UK versus overseas? Over here, obviously more intense. <laughs> uh, but overseas, yeah, they, they, would, they would be um, lively. For every single country, you would, you would get um, some real, real diehard fans. And then you'll get the fans that were quite, quite curious, but loads of fans everywhere, everywhere. And what, hanging around, following you yeah, where you hanging are? hanging around. They were there like a good hour and a half before the shows, usually, and definitely following you around. Yeah, there were people that were going from country to country. There's some of those people in the room who I know do that still. <laughs> And very lovely yeah. they are too, I have to say. But it's yeah, it, country to country. My missus said that. She's like, why would you want to go and see the same person doing the same set every single night for two weeks? Which is my proposal to her for the European tour. I'm like, it's not the same every night. You don't understand. Yeah, every, every show is different. Yeah, yeah, it's a different experience. The venue's different. The crowd's different. Sometimes it properly kicks off, which yeah. it would have done in the jam days, right? Yes, it would. Yeah. Sometimes there'd be fights at the front. Sometimes there'd be fights at the back. <laughs> <laughs> How off-putting could that be if it properly kicks off? After the first show of seeing that sort of situation, just thought, okay, that's, this is what's going to happen. So you get used to it. By that stage, presumably the gobbing stops. I mean, this is far off. Oh, no, no, that still went on. Really? Yeah. Did, yeah I mean, are there any of you, the gobbers in the room who were doing, I mean, I just cannot get my head around that. <laughs> no, <It's> no. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was always there. You want like riot shields in front of you, don't you? Like, that's disgusting. I mean, at this point, obviously the band, uh, you know, bang on top. Like I said, we've had that double number one, the top of the pops and stuff. You joined at the right time. I mean, the hotels are nicer, for instance, are they? The bus is sort of transit van. It's pretty yeah. lush and all that. Sleeper. You joined, you joined bang on point, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a sleeper. It's the first time I've actually done a tour like that where you were actually sleeping on the bus and it was comfortable. And who out of the three of them, who was the worst snorer? 
<laughs> uh, probably Kenny. <laughs> oh, bless Kenny. Uh, oh, sorry, Kenny. Yeah, I can imagine that would be true. The I should ask you then about the card score. I mean, it comes up on pretty much every podcast. Did you did you gamble? Did you play the cards? Oh yes, uh, the card one there. Uh, we got stuck one night at Glasgow Airport. We all sat down to play cards. Paul got the cards out, and John said, um, oh, I'm not going to play now. I'm not going to play right now. I might, I might play later. But John ended up playing. Paul ended up playing. Bruce ended up playing. Keith and myself joined in, ended up playing as well. Little did we know that those three, the other three, apart from me and Keith, we actually had this little system going. So they let us win to start with. Oh, what? The, what? Yeah. I was up about 120 quid. <laughs> And then the next thing I know, I'm down about 120 quid. So I ended up losing quite a bit that night. Oh, well, the three of them are like in on this. Yeah, they're all on this little scam, aren't they? It's sort of, yeah, let them win for a bit first and then we'll... This is, <laughs> this is new information. I love this. What absolute bastards. <laughs> so you're thinking I'm earning a few quid, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm with the... Yeah, this is... Oh, well, my DMs have gone up quite considerably. <laughs> yeah, so Mick Torber was here yesterday and he, he said he did it once and then he got out. Yeah, I was out after that. No, <laughs> never <no more>. again. <laughs> Obviously, the, this feels like it's a bit of a sign of things to come with the Style Council in the sense of Paul's mm. adding brass, which becomes such a big part of the Style Council sound, doesn't it? And you working on the arrangements with Keith wasn't just the records, that was obviously the live thing as well. Yeah, the live thing was slightly different. We just made it a bit, bit more, um, um, added a few more notes in here and there. Just to give it that slight difference at every show as well. So, and Rick's talks about like struggling on the stage, like struggling to keep the volume under control almost because like everybody wanted it turned up a bit more. He wanted it louder. Paul oh, wanted it louder, right? Yeah, they were loud. They were very, very, very loud. And the reason why they couldn't hear each other on stage was because it was too loud, you know, and then we couldn't hear ourselves playing. We kept on having to say like, we need more in the monitors over here, more over there. But then in the end, we just went with it. But the, I love the fact that the solution is just, just each of them just turn it up a bit louder. It's not to think about balancing. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want my bit up, I'll have my bit. And then suddenly you're just raising it, raising it, raising it. Oh, the, the level was so high. I mean, after, after the tour, I came back, I did lose a bit of my hearing. Yeah, even now, up to today, I've still lost a bit of my hearing. <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple of weeks off on that tour and then you're off to the States. And the, obviously yeah. we kind of talk about the jam not necessarily cracking the states in terms of huge chart success, but you go to like, some big old places like Washington, we're in New York, we're in Boston, then we're in Canada, then we're back to West Coast, US, yeah. we're Michigan, Chicago. I think they're three nights in LA. LA, yeah. So, I mean, it's a big tours. Yeah, LA was mad. That was mental outside Tower Records. There was a crowd going all the way up Sunset Boulevard, all the way as far as the eye could see for Tower Records. That day when, when, uh, we went in to do a sign in. Okay. Absolutely crazy. And you're, so they took all, I love that. They take all the band. Like you're part of the band. You're yeah. part of, you're, it's not just the jam or the three of them. And then there's these other guys. You, you're no, part we, of the mix. we came in. We went in for all the sign ins and everything as well. Yeah. I mean, all the fans wanted our signatures as well. I don't know why, because we're not actually part of the band, yeah, but we are in terms of instrumental playing in the gigs and shows and stuff and on the records. But it's quite unusual, I think, that for, for bands to be that inclusive. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. not, they're protective over the yeah, three. They're very, very kind to us, you know, looked after us, no problems. 
Let's talk about Japan. Yep. You go there next. And this is the final gigs for you as part of the setup. Yeah. So we go back to what the three of them, I think, after that, presumably. But yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty wild. But the gigs, again, the audience is very different. The audience in Japan was, um, how can I put it? Very stiff. <laughs> they were very, very silent. And they were told not to clap, not to jump up until when each song was finished. And then Paul actually, during one of the shows, Paul just leapt out to the audience and said, for God effing sake, clap, jump, do something. So he, he really wanted them to actually have a bit more, you know, a bit more life. You know, I know things have started already changed now in Japan. They're going on now in 20 years. Things are definitely a lot different. And was that your first time there? It was my first time in Japan. Yeah. So culturally, how what are you going? Are you, are you still Bruce's wingman at that point? Are you going out? <laughs> um, at that point, no. <laughs> no, we had we had great fun in, in in Japan. I mean, especially Tokyo. But the only thing I found about Japan was everything was very very small in terms of the seats. You know, you sit down, it's like you're sitting in a primary school chair. <laughs> It was, it was you actually, can't get out again. Yeah. <laughs> Let me read you some of the um, the songs played on that tour, right? I mean, this is like I said earlier. This is how incredible. It's like, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? So, in the crowd, pretty green ghosts. I mean, what a tune! The Great Depression, Start, Town Called Malice, Precious. We go from Precious into War, into War. Yeah. Whose idea? Where did that come from? Paul's. Yeah. Yeah. We tried it in London earlier and it worked really really well in the studio when we were rehearsing at Nomis we went from straight from Precious into War and it worked, worked really well so they thought we'd keep it in the set we get Private Hell David Watts then we get Pity Poor Alfie which goes into Fever mm. again can you remember how that came about was that just no I don't remember how that one came about okay Funeral Pyre and just Who is the Five O'Clock Hero I mean what <laughs> my god what an absolute incredible banger lineup, right now that wraps things up June 1982 Paul then goes off on holiday to Italy comes back has a meeting with Mick Talbot and like mm. we said yesterday Mick Talbot woos him and he breaks up the jam is the story that's what Mick said <laughs> if you were in the room how did you find out then that the jam were going to be no more and how did you how did your involvement in the band come to an end well, you know, at the end of Japan, there's a really funny story. At the last show that we did in Tokyo, we had the set list taped to our monitors. Um, so the set list was in, in, in English, taped to monitors. The night of the show, it was in Japanese. <laughs> they actually changed our set list into Japanese, turned them into Japanese. What, it was like a long wind up or? Yeah, it was complete, complete wind up for us. So, cause the last gig. And then also, I picked up my trumpet to play my trumpet and all my vowels were turned the wrong way around. And in Keith's saxophone, they'd put talcum powder <laughs> down his, down his saxophone. So when we went to play, nothing was coming out. Yeah. Nothing at all. So it took us about three songs into the show before we could actually, they could actually hear us. And initially, I'm guessing you're thinking it's the sound guy, the sound's not coming out. You know, you don't know they're pissed about with it. No, we knew, we knew straight away. Oh. I haven't seen the set list that something else was up. But it's around that same time that we thought, because during, earlier on during the day, Paul was like hinting that he might want to break, you know, so I'm thinking, uh, the other two were like huffing and puffing. So there was, um, you know, on the horizon. That so you could, so up. you could see the kind of, I guess you, you could see what's, it wasn't a great surprise when they announced the split for you then. No, not for me. That wasn't, no. And no. you can see this kind of tension. See, yeah. Yeah? Okay. See, yeah. We should also mention, obviously, the Trans Global Unity Express is, 
was available. I think we were viewing it in the green room earlier on. It came out on VHS and um, Laserdisc. Did anybody have the Laserdisc of that thing? <laughs> and this was the Bingley Hall in Birmingham. Where's Shane Jusen? Shane here. So Shane, we can see you in that video, Shane, right? Yes. Five cameramen with their cameras anchored to the pillars to avoid the crush of more than 5,000 fans waiting in the mounting excitement to capture the power of the jam live, is mm. what the video says. Do you ever watch that back? I've watched it a couple of times, but not over the last X amount of years, but I've had watched it back. Yeah. I mean, can you believe you're part of that setup? Not until everyone sort of reminds me every day. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite strange because I'm quite a private and quiet person when it comes down to that. Even when I went off to do my own thing, I still don't like really watching myself back on TV. You know, but I get all these phone calls saying, Oh, you was on this. You was on that. I'm going, uh, which one? Oh, the jam. And then I said, Oh no, loose ends. And they just, but it's one of the things that I don't like doing for some reason. It's also one of those things that, that must creep up on you. So if you have, you know, they do like the classic top of the pop shows. Yeah. And you're just settling down with your lovely wife, the kids. You just Yeah, that's that. happened quite a few times. And then bang, you're on the telly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's happened quite a few times, actually. I usually get up out of bed or go get up out of the room and go somewhere else. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh God, he's got the white glove on again. Yeah. <laughs> or I look, t- or I look t- 20 years younger or 30 years younger. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? We're talking now about a band that split up what, 40 years ago. That time has just passed yeah. in the blink yeah. of an eye, isn't it? Yep. Just totally. It's like yesterday. <laughs> Let's talk loose ends. So post yeah. the jam, I mean, right. the loose ends was a thing before the jam as well, right? You know what? Um, I got a phone call um, from uh, Mick Clark, who's no longer with us now, saying that they wanted to sign me while I was on the jam tour. Yeah, for a publishing deal. Because I already submitted um, demo tapes to them. And cut along to so I said, no, I'll wait until when I get back off tour. Then I'll come in and do the necessary paperwork. So that's how that happened. And this is, is this Branson's record label? Yeah, said? Richard Branson's label. So yeah. Virgin. Virgin, yeah. Wow, I mean, bloody hell. To come off the jam, we're straight into <laughs> straight Virgin, to Virgin Yeah, Yeah, no mucking about there. And we should say loose ends to the first UK British soul band to go over and break the US, which yeah. deserves a round of applause on its own, I think. <laughs> what an achievement. Thank you. Just unbelievable. I mean, you're having chart success at the same time as the Style Council, actually, when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Were you ever on the same bill? No, you, oh, I think we did. Um, I don't think we did Top of the Pops once, but they run like a week before us. But it's definitely the same same time, same period. Yeah. Same vibe, yeah. yeah. And Paul's even more into that kind of soul, funk, yeah. the R&B stuff. Yeah, because he had DC Lee up front, front in it. So, yeah, and I knew DC Lee as well before that. Yeah. And, and Loose End has become the, so the first ever British number one on the US R&B billboard chart, which knocks Prince off number one. Yeah, we knocked Prince off number one. What was the Prince song? Was it I Would Die For You, I think? Oh, okay. So it's yeah. Purple Rain time, obviously, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a big oh. one. He rings you up. Yeah, he rings us up in the limousine. <laughs> in a limo. In the limo and driving around New York. And then we got this phone call from Prince and he said, Oh, well done for knocking me off number one. <laughs> Quite strange. I mean, there's somebody you want to be somebody's wingman for Prince. That would yeah. have been interesting, right? <laughs> he did take me out for dinner. Did he say come on party? Was that the thing? Yeah, he said to me, come out. Yeah, he said to all of us, yeah, come next time in LA, come on party with us. And you did that? Or you went out for dinner with I him? went out for dinner with Prince, yeah. That's crazy. Talking about story. I mean, you imagine passing with Prince. <laughs> oh my God. I can't even go there. Yeah. No. I mean, that's the book, right? It's Steve Nickel book. <laughs> yeah. One of the I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if this is true because you never know with Discogs, but you have a writing credit on Michael Jackson's final studio album. Yeah. Unbreakable. Not. The opening track. It's actually some of the music. 
they sampled some of my music. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So how did you find out about that? The publishers have this thing whereby they, they try and collect all your royalties from around the world. And anyone that sampled anything, they will um, call you up and say, oh, by the way, you have got a percentage of this or that. So it could be Michael Jackson. It could be any, anyone else. But just this one particular one um, to be Michael Jackson. And which, I mean, I, obviously we did, I foolishly didn't ask you to bring the trumpet with you. What was it trumpet or keys? What no, it was keys. It was keys. keys yeah. And what, did the, what was the bit? I'm not even sure. I'm really not sure. All I know is I've got this lovely credit from Michael Jackson. So, <laughs> I mean, that looks good on the CV, doesn't it? Yeah, it's good on the CV. <laughs> Brilliant on the CV. Hey, look, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so many stories that you've got from your career that, I mean, there needs to be a book. Why is it? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned you're a very private person, but yeah. there, there's, this has got to be a thing, right? There are, there are some really, really good things. There's really some funny things that um, I can remember. But the funniest thing is watching Bruce Popson trying to play tennis. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> See, like, from what point of view? We were in Palo Alto and um, I don't know how it came about, but there was this tennis tournament going on for all the um, residents in the hotel block. And um, we decided to enter. And so as me and Keith were like one of the team, and I don't know who, who Bruce teamed up with, but watching him try to play tennis. No coordination. <laughs> he might be a brilliant bass player, but you know, no coordination whatsoever. That's unfortunate, isn't it? Because he's always had the <laughs> hair for it, hasn't he? The beyond ball kind of. That was quite funny. And then trying to watch him dance as well, really. Oh, well, please tell me. Where was the, well, this is out. This is out, out. <laughs> what places would you go to? Is it like disco? Was it you were trying to find like a bit of fun? It, yeah, a little bit of fun at clubs, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. And do people know when you, oh, this is brilliant. When, so when you're out, do they know that it's you and he, Bruce yeah, that are out? We used to have one of, one of the, um, the bouncers used to come with us as well. So yeah, that, that used to be fun. Used to be fun. So they knew, they could tell you were showbiz. Yeah, they knew, well, they knew we were really. Yeah. You know, you'd be put over to a little corner and then we just saying, oh, I think I, I want to see a bit of the action. I want to go for a dance. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your wife's in the room, so we can't go any further, but this no. is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, look, right. So you are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What are you going to go with? What would I go with? That's entertainment. Ah, uh, why that one? Because I like it. <laughs> Did you notice? I noticed the, pi the pitch of your voice changed there, like mine yeah, does when I I'm like very excited. It. That's entertainment. It was a toss up between That's Entertainment or Five O'Clock Hero. Ah, okay. Yeah. Which you played on. I played on Five O'Clock Hero. Okay. So final question, as you'll know, the purpose of this podcast, the purpose of this whole event, folks, is for me to get the interview with Paul Wellis. The only reason I said yes to the weekend, I'll be honest, All right. as much as I love Stuart and Nikki, is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller. We're now, what, 150 plus episodes in, right? right? Back in the day... Gary Crowley could just go to a red letter, a, a red phone box rather, <laughs> pick up the phone, ring Weller's family home and get an interview. Now you have to do 150 episodes of a podcast. Right. For before you actually <laughs> get any interest. Yeah. If it ever happens, what should I ask him? What would you like to know? What would he like to know? Um, where does he get his shoes from? <laughs> because he's always, every time I've seen Paul out, he's always got these lovely shoes on. They're nice. I've never seen him in a pair of Nikes. Have you? No. His shoes. Where does he get his shoes from? Yeah, they're really nice. That's a great question. <laughs> did Did he ever? I should have asked. Did he ever go out to the clubs with you? Yeah, it was just, it was no, just he's always tucked up in bed. 
Oh yeah, because Jill was obviously around then. So yeah, <laughs> yeah Jill exactly. was still around. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, look, this has been such an absolute delight. Please do give it up for Steve Nichol. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Steve Nichol. What an amazing guest on the podcast. And so lovely to record that one live in front of an audience at the big Weller Weekender. Thanks again to Nikki Weller and Stuart Deabill for inviting me along. More on that to come in the future, I hope. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes to this podcast. Just head to my website. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, head into my store. You can get your official podcast merchandise and you can get a virtual coffee if you fancy it. Hello to Sean Wilson, who's done exactly that. Hello, Sean. Thank you to you for your generosity. Hi to Phil Baker. Hello, Phil. Much appreciated to you for your subscription. Nice one. Hello, Alex McLaughlin, who says the Mick Talbot honorary counsellors was great fun. Mick Talbot is always a brilliant and funny listen. Enjoyed the chat from Kamel, Jay and Stuart too. Thank you, Alex. Cheers for your virtual coffee. Hello to Georgia Moroso. Hello, Georgia. Hello to Grants. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee, sir. Hello, Duncan. Thanks for your support. Thank you to all of you for getting involved. Much appreciated. If you want to head to my website, you can. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com You can also get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram, Facebook and Threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. On the next episode, another multi-award winning guest joins us. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Spread the word on social media as well. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.